Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About baseball players. About washed up egos. About small towns in the vein of Hallmark movies. About brothers who don't take baby sisters seriously. About sisters that don't take baby sisters seriously. About witty named Hallmark fake buildings. About clout. <laughs> About identity crisis. About um, over-the-panty hot dog bun stuff. About proposing in public. About just getting really horned up for kid sisters, little babies. Yeah, incest-adjacent romance. <laughs> it's endless, but most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. Hopefully we executed that well with your, even with your unstable internet connection. That was really good. This week, we are going to discuss Fix Her Up by romance darling Tessa Bailey. Yes, so Fix Her Up uh, was selected, was recommended to us because people think that we're going to disagree about this book. Which says something not good about one of us, and I think it's (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll we'll unpack that. I walked away from this feeling insulted. Um, I See, I just thought people didn't understand the request, but... I think people don't want us to fight. I think people want us to agree. I mean, I like having conversations with you. I don't go into this wanting to fight with you. That isn't the reason detra of my doing this podcast. I don't need to agree with you all the time. I just like don't go in with fisticuffs. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So when you put out the request feeling chippy, I was like, okay, what are we going to get? And then like we got this recommendation. I'm like... Uh huh. I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about. So we got quite a few recommendations, and this is the one you chose. I think what I'm trying to say is, I think you're hurting your own feelings. I think you're thinking too much about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I will read the back of the book. Should I start? We should absolutely include this blurb. Fixer Up ticks all my romance boxes. Not only is it hilarious, it's sweet, endearing, heartwarming, and downright sexy. It's a recipe for the perfect love story. Helena Hunting, New York Times bestselling author of Meet Cute. We read a Helena Hunting. I thought we hadn't, and you pointed out to me she wrote Pucked, which was a part of our Entropy series. It was our sports romance. Even though we ended up accidentally reading a bunch of sports romances. And this, too, is a sports romance. We can't get away from it. And I'm going to say, maybe I don't want to. Oh, wow. Okay. Back of the book. A steamy, hilarious new romantic comedy from New York Times bestselling author Tessa Bailey. Perfect for fans of Christina Loren and Sally Thorne. Okay. Georgette Castle's family runs the best home renovation business in town, but she picked balloons instead of blueprints, and they haven't taken her seriously since. Frankly, she's over it. Georgie loves planning children's birthday parties and making people laugh, just not at her own expense. She's determined to fix herself up into a woman of the world, whatever that means. Okay, what this paragraph is leading out, leaving out and, like, I would say conspicuously tiptoeing around is that she's a professional clown. Mm-hmm. In Long Island for kids' parties. She's a Long Island clown. <laughs> Continuing on. Phase one. 
New framework for her business. A website from this decade, perhaps? She just said she doesn't like to laugh at her own expense back of the book. Lay off. Phase two, a gut reno of her on her wardrobe. FYI, leggings are pants. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about that besides my facial tick, but I just... <laughs> I What I think is actually great about the back of this book is that it really introduces you to the tenor and tone of this text. Yes. The quippy asides. <laughs> the pathos. Self-deprecating and like... But also like incredibly mundane. It's like when people are like, hot take, I love ice cream. And it's like, that's not a hot take. Yeah. Isabel, what year was this published? I am going to be embarrassed for whatever year it is. (laughs) Oh my God, the name of the series is Hot and Hammered. (laughs) Hammered means drunk. Or hammered by a penis, I guess. I guess, but like, can't wait to hammer you. (laughs) It doesn't work. Publication date, 2019. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's only like two years old. Uh, Someone announcing in 2019 that leggings are pants is exactly exactly saying that everybody likes ice cream is saying you like ice cream is a hot take. Which is kind of the vibe of the book. So in this way, this feels like one of the most honest back of the books we've read in a while. There are two more phases. Phase three. <laughs> Updates to her exterior. Do people still wax? Strong feelings there. Phase four. Put herself on the market and stop crushing on Travis Ford. Living her best life means facing the truth. Georgie hasn't been on a date well since ever. Nobody's asking the town clown for a night of hot sex, that's for sure. Th- that's for sure. Maybe if people think she's having a steamy love affair, they'll acknowledge that she's not just the little sister who paints faces for a living. And who better to help demolish that image than the resident sports bar star and tabloid favorite? It is an underutilized tool in women's toolbox to be taken seriously professionally um, to be seen to be publicly having sex with a popular celebrity. That's a great way to get people to take you seriously and see you as an adult. Travis Ford was a major league was Major League Baseball's hottest rookie when an injury ended his career. Now he's flipping houses to keep busy and trying to forget his glory days, but he can't even cross the street without someone recapping his greatest hits or making a joke about his bat. And then there's Georgie, his best friend's sister, who is not a kid anymore. Could have fooled me after reading this whole book. When she proposes a wild scheme that they pretend to date to shock her family and help him land a new job, he agrees. What's the harm? It's not like it's real. But the girl Travis used to tease is now a funny, full-of-life woman, and there's nothing fake about how much he wants her. Entertainment Weekly says her voice feels as fresh and contemporary as a Netflix (laughs) rom-com. The shade of it all, Entertainment Weekly. (laughs) But, but okay, so this book has quite a few tropes in it. Um, it's a sports romance. We have a former baseball player. Uh, it's also a fake relationship. Yeah. Um, it's also uh, one of those stories where it's not just, like, the main character is the main character. It's, like, their family is the center of the universe, and all relationships revolve around their family. It's like they can't just meet people, please. 
Is that a trope? I feel like it's the water. I almost feel like there's a binary of like that's either one thing or the other where it's like the the two main characters are alone in a desert of non-society or there's a very overactive family and there isn't like an in-between of like a family that's just sort of fine. No. And this family is particularly interesting. Uh, Her mother actually encourages her to have sex with this guy at their house. And, like, creates the conditions under which she can have sex with this guy at their family dinner, which I found shocking. I mean, the mom's from Long Island, and I think they're... I gotta, like... Is, is that, are those the New York values that Mitt Romney was talking about? They must be. It's funny, because <laughs> I listened to this book, and the mom's Long Island accent sounded almost Bostonian at times. Um, so she's like, go get a guy, go get a... And I was like... <laughs> it's so funny, because I was reading the book, and I was like, in my head, I was like, no, Long Island, because I kept reading it in, like, a North Carolina, because I kept thinking of uh, one of my favorite... Oh, I wouldn't just say my favorite. The best summer baseball movie which is oh my god and the name just left me the one with susan sarandon and tim robbins bull durham bull durham this book says that the best baseball movie is a league of their own and a league of their own is a very good baseball movie but bull durham is in fact the best one yeah i mean not hot take baseball makes really good movies because they're not often about baseball baseball is just the setting um yeah (laughs) And baseball's barely the setting here. Yeah, because Travis, our main character, has had a grievous injury after being almost rookie of the year and playing in the World Series. He's blown out his rotator cuff and can never play again. Poor, poor guy. But he's still set for life. He doesn't actually have to work. Yeah. But he chooses to work. Which is nice, I guess. That means he's a good person. Does it mean he's a good person or does it mean he's a good subject of late capital? (laughs) You know the side that Womance is on. Yeah, so he is, he returns to his hometown. Why? Uh, He had like a horrible relationship with his parents who no longer live in the area. He's disinterested in engaging with his hometown in a meaningful way. His best friend, who he hasn't seen in many years, he doesn't really, like he has to restart that relationship over the course of the novel. And so I remain confused as to why he returned to his small town in Long Island post-injury. I mean, other than to be the setting of the plot. I think that this brings me to one of my first uh, questions about this romance, which was like, Travis is in an identity crisis. And I think part of what I am to understand based on this book is that he goes home because he doesn't know where else to go. Mm. Because without baseball, he's nothing. Without baseball, he's not even friends with his oldest best friend in the world. Because in the very beginning, he says something like, who am I without baseball to you? And the idea that you'd have to relearn a foundational relationship like a childhood best friend when you are not a baseball star anymore struck me as sad and odd. Yeah, I think there is this like complete secession of identity that has to occur to become a professional athlete, at least in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. But I totally accept he has nowhere else to go. I'm for it. That's a great reason. But his friend's little sister, uh, our heroine, Georgette, who goes by Georgie and is a professional clown, decides that she's going to shake him out of his misery, get him back on track. And so she goes to his house and he's hungover and lying naked in his bed and she throws rotten food on him. And he's like, whoa, you're such a spitfire. What a scamp. Get out of here. But then she does. There's something about her that encourages him to make a move and he starts working for her brother's contracting business called brick and morty called brick and morty is it a reference to brick and mortar or is it a reference to rick and morty i think it's both and that's why it's so punny uh i hate it I liked it the first time I heard it, and then the book repeated it a thousand times, and then I hated it. I think this was a masterclass in the overutilization. Don't fall in love with your own joke. Yeah, don't fall in love with your own joke. Like, let it sit, let it be funny, and like, don't retread that ground. Move on. Yeah. This book was deeply problematic to me. It was upsetting in a lot of ways. It was endearing in a lot of ways. It remained captivating for me. And what I noticed after I was done reading it really quickly, like I devoured it. When I was done, I was struck by how I had the same feeling after I had finished like a Joanna Lindsay or a Kathleen Woodowis, where I had like torn through this book, you know, reconciled, like contextualized all of the issues. But at the end of this book, I didn't have that space because it was published in 2019. And so the problems that I have with it, I wasn't able to be like, oh, but it was like of the era. And that's like part of reading these older books. I have to be like, oh, these are attitudes that are accepted. And indeed, if we're going off of like the trajectory of this book and the books that came after it, popularized more than accepted. People find genuine pleasure in them in this era. And so that makes this book, I think, a lot harder to unpack than something like a Woodowis or a Lindsay. I agree and disagree. I did not feel like I had read a Lindsay or a Woodowis. I did read this very quickly. It is a speedy read and it is captivating. This book really trips along. The voice for all the jokes that I've made is one that like I didn't, I loved hating on and I also loved hearing. So like that's a weird move. I think one of the things that really struck me and I'm glad that you brought this this idea of these values being popularized Mm -hmm. and maybe even valorized in this text it's like everything about this if you had moved to a historical so rather than like a sports saddie he was like a duke saddie it would it would have been more acceptable to me if he had a different term of endearment that was as infantilizing it would like if you move it into the historical context it would have been more acceptable to me and I'm like what about the modern context literally gave me the shivers in a bad way and also I couldn't look away there are some moments that literally felt like a train wreck in this book and I'm like what the fuck is like I because I listened to it 
I like I would literally walking my dog and I'd be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, what is happening right now? For example. For example, there's a scene where he, I think the one that you brought up about the mom orchestrating a clandestine sexual encounter in her backyard where he finger bangs his best friend's little sister who's only 23, also a virgin and a clown. And he keeps saying, baby girl, I'm going to fuck you so hard against your family's house. And I'm like, don't call her baby girl and fuck her against her parents' house. And like, he always brings up the brother. So then he's like, baby girl, you're my best friend's little baby sister and I'm going to fuck you so hard. He says, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, because there's a very specific line. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's not her. He doesn't talk about her brother. He talks about her father. Oh, no. Yeah, here we go. I know what to search. Travis's laugh was winded. I'm a rookie at virgins and fuck italics. <laughs> While we're on the subject, you're closed up around my finger so tight. I'm probably never going to look your father in the eye again. A reading from <laughs> Fixer. So he has his he has a finger inside of her and he's like talking about her father, her dad. While they're in her childhood backyard. Yeah, in her in her family home. While her family is inside at Sunday dinner. I believe that there was some controversy around this book whenever it came out and people were upset about the term of endearment baby girl, which I think is reasonable. Um, But I, I think what makes this so egregious is that our heroine is constantly being put into the context of a child. And so the other thing, like, it's not just that he calls her baby girl. He refers to her as a girl when she refers to him as a man. Golly. They get finished having sex in the dugout. And she calls him something like a good, strong man. And he calls her something like a good, sweet girl. That was pretty distracting. Um, We also discover in that same pool house or garage, I can't remember which they chose, scene... That he's very excited that she has waxed, she is fully waxed, which in the context, like normally I'm a little iffy on, but in the context of like being with a sex partner who constantly refers to her as a baby girl, who is constantly referencing specific memories of her as a child, who is putting her into the context of being the baby sibling of his friend. Uh, the child of his friend's parents, he's constantly contextualizing her that way that it becomes even, it feels like fetishistic (laughs) to a certain point because it's not just the term of endearment, which is constant in the book. Inescapable. It is pervasive. I So I had heard about the baby girl thing and I was like, oh, so he calls her that. Like, I don't know what I thought. I didn't think it would be on every other page. Or in every dialogue tag. Especially when they're like having sex. Especially when they're having sex or when he hurts her or like moments of emotional crisis. Everything about that. And listen, I don't care for baby girls and endearment in general, but like sprinkle it in fine. It's not going to trip me up. But this, oh my God, it was a deluge of baby girls. And it really served to re like color every other otherwise like oh boy societally like it seems like it's into it like it's into the infantilization of the heroine yes 
And I think part of the fetishization, because I think you're exactly right, is this further thing that Travis does where he like fetishizes feeling guilty about fucking her. Yes. And part of it is because of her child, like whatever, that he keeps revivifying, even though she's an adult woman who's starting an LLC and he's like, I'm a bad man for fucking you. I'm such a bad man. And then it's like, I know the book wants me to believe that. And like, and then it's her job to save him from his bad feelings about himself. Yeah. And like, let's talk about like what would make him a bad man. So he's having, he is an adult having consensual sex with another adult, right? Right. So all of the idea that he's a bad person has to be like read through this lens of she belongs to her family and not to him. And because she belongs to her family, she is still a child. And you're right, revivifying is what that term of endearment does it always brings the volume all the way back up it wasn't like a fun hate read even for me because I I really enjoyed I think I like was swept up in the book Mm -hmm. but then these moments would come and just like baby girl would reappear on the page and it would just break it and it's not like baby girl ever just occur it doesn't occur in a vacuum right because is what I think we're trying to get at it's not just the term baby girl. And I think what's even more wrenching is that our heroine's main project is to establish herself as an adult. And this relationship is supposed to be helping her establish herself as an adult to her family. And it's supposed to do that through like sexualizing her to her parents, I guess, is her vision, which is weird. Right, like, if I'm ready for sex, then you have to treat me as an adult? I'm Well, I'm having sex specifically with this person who has had a lot of sex. Which makes me sex object, adult object. Yeah, but then she has this larger project of, like, I want to run my own business, and I want people to take me seriously and see me as more than a clown. And that project is actually pretty successful through the text. Like, she starts this group with her sister, her older sister, and another woman in their small community who all have dreams and they want to support each other in achieving their dreams. And so they just get together and they're like holding each other accountable and offering like actual real support. Like that's really successful. And she ends up bringing on a couple of other children's entertainers and starting a company and getting an office. Like these are all really big, exciting things. Like that's really effective. But the like skeleton of the romance novel is the romance itself. And that is like continuing to both infantilize and objectify the heroine. And it's just so weird (laughs) because it really exemplifies how you can have these two truths. Like you can be someone who understands like solidarity between women and like what that means and how that actually works and a way ways in which we can support each other outside of the voting box because this is a remarkably apolitical book for something such that it is the (laughs) the other side of it is like very much getting sexual pleasure from the idea of like I'm just a little girl and it's pretty sick yeah I don't disagree and the fact that like Travis hasn't done anything to prove that like he's a bad 
person other than his continual sexualization of this incest adjacent relationship and infantilization of this adult woman who wants to have sex with him Mm -hmm. all of his like deep dark trauma stems from like his bad relationship with his parents who had a really ugly divorce and he felt like really shuttled around so it's his quote-unquote badness comes from what is essentially not feeling loved enough and insecure and so the way that like he and his insecurities are fleshed out Mm. through her loving and supporting him and she is fleshed out in her whole personness by the female solidarity group because she's being like it's not gaslighting but it's like she's being negged basically all the time where she's like I want to be treated like an adult and he's like okay baby girl like get on my bed I mean it's what you said earlier like she treats him like a man and And all of his emotional stuff, like, she tries to help him with. And he treats her like a baby. And that's it. And there is this moment. There are, like, moments of real gratification. Like, he goes to her parents' dinner. And there's lots of rumination on her ass from his perspective. And then he stands up for her to her dad. And her dad is like, you know what? He's right. You are a grown-up. And I understand the thought there, and I think it comes from a good place, right? Like, it's wonderful to have a partner who supports you and sees you as, an, as you know, a whole person. That's important. A lot of that is negated whenever he fingers you in your parents' pool house and talks about your dad and your brother while he, whilst he is inside you. But I also think, like, there's something about the fact that, like, she needed her boyfriend to tell her dad that she was a whole person and that just by... Like, like she hasn't actually done anything, you know, she hasn't had like a breakthrough moment yet in the text. And so him just being like, guess what? She is an adult. And her dad's like, you know what? Now that this other adult has said so, I guess I can take it seriously. A man adult. And it's like holy, like nothing is wholly satisfying in this novel. I agree. And I think that setup starts from the beginning so our Georgie in her project even before she wants to have sex with Travis she wants to make her family see her as an adult so she's starting a new tradition where she's gonna have brunch and she invites everyone over her sister Bethany her brother Stephen and his weird wife Kristen we gotta talk about that relationship we do and everybody forgets except for Travis. And her first reaction when he steps into her doorway ready for brunch, which she has spent all morning cooking, like her kitchen's a mess. And she's like, oh, you know, my stove isn't working. And he's like, I can smell that it is. And as a youngest sibling, I 100% would have thrown my siblings under the bus to this sympathetic stranger who had shown up. I'd made all the food already. I would have been like, those bitches fucking forgot. They don't care about me. Like, come eat my food. And so the fact that her first instinct was to protect siblings who she's constantly complaining about, I was like, oh boy, this is like pathological for you, dude. Yeah. But the the, uh, the feeling of hurt, though, as it was described in that chapter, was so, it was very much uh, connected for me. Absolutely. All of her feelings were so well expressed and real. I understood where it was coming from. But even in the decision to protect people who had hurt you, I was like, and she does it throughout the whole book. 
And I think that's a thing that we see in heroines in the genre a lot, where it's like they'll swallow the hurt and protect the family. Like, I don't feel like that's a thing I haven't read before. But reading it in the modern context in this way was like really explicit. See, I think this book would have been just as miserable for the same reasons, even if it was a historical novel. But I think if this book was published in like, even in like 2001, I would have been able to be like, oh, wow. Like, I I think a lot of times when you and I discuss older novels, we're able to enjoy them because we're able to tell ourselves that, like, this isn't how things are anymore. And, like, if they are, they are that way for, like, this small slice of the population, right, who is idiosyncratic. But it's, like, this comforting idea that, like, the general populace of Romance Landia, even, has this level of self-awareness and, like, wokeness or whatever. But reading this book that was this popular, published in 2019, really drives home that it it's not an idiosyncratic belief system. And, like, even when we read shifter novels, which do a lot of this, like, infantilization and objectification, we're able to be like, oh, well, it's, like, a shifter no- novel, so this is, like, a pure fantasy and there's something about like a contemporary rom-com doing it that makes it clear that like this fantasy of self-annihilation essentially because (laughs) if you're an adult woman who wants to be treated as a child that's a form of self-annihilation and I'm imagining counter arguments are going to be like well she really helped him you know and that therefore disrupts this idea that he was you know treating her as a child or whatever Mm. But the oppressiveness of the baby girl, the tyranny of endearment, it like overwhelms all of the other things in the novel. It is clear that this relationship is the central idea of the book. And it's clear that the book enjoys and is writing it for, is is bringing this kind of relationship into existence for your pleasure. And a pleasure that does not beckon you to ask further questions. Yeah. Absolutely. I think both the tenor and the tone and how it trips along. Yeah, it's like eating a whole pint of ice cream or like the whole thing of cotton candy where it's like it feels good in the moment that you're doing it and then it melts and you're like, why oh, I ate too much and now I don't feel good. I don't feel good at all. And like, why did I do this thing? And I think the term self-annihilation is a good one. And I think you're right to envision a counter argument that says, well, you know, she helped him in the project of his self-esteem and like understanding himself as a valuable member of society even if he isn't a baseball star anymore. Sure, 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 sure. That doesn't negate the self-annihilation because she's working to do those things for him and all he ends up doing for her is interrupting bad family dynamics where she still isn't asserting herself, right? Like she doesn't confront her brother. She doesn't confront her father. She eventually does confront the sister, but even that is hard one and halfway through the novel. Right. And the only person in her family that she does that with, and that's partially because Bethany wants to start the club, the Just Us League, about this women's solidarity thing. And then our main character, Georgie, feels compelled to be like, well, you haven't really been solidarity with me until this point. And then, you know, they sort of have this like work through of that. But that's totally absent of Travis. Yeah, I mean, this novel passes the Bechdel test in those moments. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like these really good moments, like these satisfying in a way that doesn't make me sad. <laughs> like these these completely resolved and buttoned up moments exist alongside the baby girl. Mm-hmm. What was your sexiest part? 
It's a very steamy novel. So steamy. And it is hard to enjoy because her the male the men in her family are pretty constantly brought up during the sex scene. He takes her virginity. That's another thing. Like, why was she a virgin? And like it's not just that she's a virgin. He also talks about how tight she is. But I do think like his perspective of like falling in love with her while they're having sex is interesting. There is a sex scene where he says that he's not going to take her virginity because that doesn't seem like a reasonable part of their agreement and so he flips her over and gives her a wedgie and then gratifies himself between her ass cheeks like a hot dog in a bun which I have heard of before I know someone who did it in France and when it happened the guy said this is how we do it in France and I was like that has to be the least French sounding sex act I've ever heard of absolutely so he like <laughs> but that's nothing I've ever read in a romance novel before. I think like the sex scenes are very sexy. I would say the sexiest part. I like it. I, I do like their first sexual encounter on the couch. I think he talks about her parents the least in that one. <laughs> I think he does too. I also uh, like that when he asks her how she's envisioned losing her virginity she says like Netflix and chill, like just like being on the couch and watching a movie. And I thought that was actually kind of nice and honest and um, authentic in a way that felt like good. And then the movie that they she like had like been thinking about while they're like making out and talking about this plan that they're going to have. She mentions Cold Mountain. And I'm like, of all the movies that you're going to ignore when you're having sex with someone, I'm like Cold Mountain. Like a baby gets murdered in that movie. Yeah, lots of awful things happen in that movie. Like the first five minutes is just a bloodbath in the Civil War. I'm like, no, even on mute. But like, why would you have that on mute? So many questions. There, there was something really sad to me about her vision of losing her virginity because it was like... So attainable. Yeah, it was so attainable. And it kind of spoke to this idea that she spent a lot of time romanticizing normal sex. As opposed to like, you know, dreaming big. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Georgie doesn't dream big for herself. And it's like, you imagine her like listening to her friends talk about their sexual encounters, which probably followed that exact line. And were oftentimes with, you know, Netflix and chill with someone they met on Tinder. And you can kind of feel Georgie longing for that. Mm -hmm. And it's just sad trombone for me. (laughs) (laughs) i can see that i would like my first time to be like everybody else's 40th i think it's also part of this infantilization that's so deeply baked in where it's like teens have sex on the couch in the basement when their parents are sleeping with a movie going to hide the sounds of what they're doing yeah which is why that fantasy of it yeah and a movie like cold mount like if you're a teen it's not pathological Right. If you're a teen, it's not pathological. It just makes sense because you need a loud-ish war movie to cover (laughs) whatever sounds you're doing underneath that blanket. But as an adult person who lives in their own home that has a mortgage, you don't need to do that. Yeah. 
So again, like this infantilization of the female character is um, pretty intense and like, again, kind of unquestioning in the text itself. You still want to hold on to that as your favorite part? That's not my favorite part. I Or your sexiest part. No, it's not my sexiest part. And it wasn't. It was just something that I noted in the text where I was like, oh, you know, this is an attainable fantasy that feels authentic and kind of nice in that way. But now that we've discussed it, it's maybe not that <laughs> nice. But that wasn't my sexiest part. What's your sexiest part? <sighs> that fucking scene in the dugout. Like they're both oh, sweaty yeah. from running around and then he just like has to have her and they're pulling each other's clothes off and it's like semi-public but not super public. Yeah. Also, these sex scenes just like erupt out of like kind of nowhere. Um, I was always a little bit caught off guard or like on my left foot when it like erupted into like yeah. full on finger blasting. I think if someone told me that they wanted like a steamy contemporary, I'd be like, Tessa Bailey's a good place to go. Maybe not this book because the like the dirty talk, like you can tell that it's good, but it um does in this book constantly go back to like the fact that she's someone's little sister. Like, who wants to be reminded of their siblings? No one. Incest adjacent is like... Yes. <laughs> and then they just keep going. Like, she never stops him and says, like, hey, could you, like, not talk about my brother while we're fooling around? It just keeps happening. Because we're rooted in his perspective when he's doing the dirty talk. We never... Is it true that we never get her perspective when he's dirty talking her? She likes it. She like she responds well to it, but yeah, I think I would have been well, it would never be anything as ex- like this book isn't self-aware. So it would never be anything as explicit as like I was shocked to hear the reference to my brother, but then I was like also just like, "Uh, move on." <laughs> like nothing like that happens. Mm-mm. And like I also think I would have noticed if she was like, and then he mentioned my brother and I was like, "Oh yeah, tell me about how I'm a little sister." No, nothing like that happens. A perspective shift wouldn't be self-aware enough to be a problem. What's your weirdest part? Well, besides all the other stuff, it's the relationship between her older brother and his wife, which is uh, abusive. So her brother, uh, Stephen, met a woman who was Southern, and they all make many, many jokes about that. And he met her when she was vacationing in Manhattan, and he like met her at a crosswalk, and she never went back home, right? She stayed with him forever. And he really wants a family, and she has never wanted a family. So he's doing things to try and convince her that she wants a family, like buying a minivan. Can you think of, like, a less compelling argument to have children than here, drive this minivan? Not only drive this minivan, but I'll already put the stick figure family on it for you. I thought that was a joke. Oh, I took that literally because I understood Stephen as like a very literal, like I did not, I thought that would literally happen in the text because he'd already bought her the minivan. So like, might as well get the stick, <laughs> the two people stick figures and be like, look at how weird this is. I guess we better reproduce. And then her her sister-in-law is also somehow the villain. Mm-hmm. Of the story. Like, they have to go to Zumba because she's teaching Zumba classes. She's always teaching a different fitness class, right? She's always, like, swanning in and taking over their projects. And it's like, and I think the book is aware of this, but it's not very generous about it. Like, this is a woman who has clearly been trapped in a situation she wasn't that interested in. And now she's trying to make the best of it. And she has all of these mental resources and all of this energy, and she has nowhere to put it because the community is not big enough to support a new person doing new things here, right? So she's desperately bored. She doesn't want children. 
And she's, like, always doing things where she's deliberately upsetting her husband so that he has to come and get her. At one point, she goes to the Justice League mi- meeting, and then her husband shows up with his hair wet, and he's like, these w- women agitators. I thought we were going to have sex tonight because you're ovulating. And it's like, she doesn't even want kids. Like, why are you tracking her ovulation? Why are you tracking her at all? Like, he slams into that house without so much as a buy your leave. More than once. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of treated as this, like, whimsical, silly thing. And the person mostly at fault, it seemed to me from my reading, the text feels like the person mostly at fault is the sister-in-law. Right, because she keeps engineering this these situations to upset Stephen. And I'm like, is she engineering these situations or is like Stephen just upset? Or is she? And like, what does that tell us? <laughs> right. I'm like, anything about... Yeah, no, I agree. That was a really weird part of the book. Travis even says at the beginning when Stephen is relating how he saw her in the crosswork and she never went back. He's like, yeah, that sounds more like kidnapping than a romance. And I'm like... Mm, calling a spade a spade Travis okay (laughs) yeah I would say a runner up for my weirdest part is the back of the book asking if people wax anymore oh my god and in 2019 I think not really man not really is no and Travis of course doesn't wax but like it's not about parody like that's not the like whatever blah my weirdest part is Travis's dad showing up in the last act oh I thought he was a pretty good a shadow villain like the thing that's chasing Travis's self-esteem and so then him actually showing up and proceeding to like facilitate like the the mega hurt that breaks our couple up and then is the obstacle that they have to overcome I was like this feels like gilding the lily too much also like imagining that Travis's only course of reprieve is like to tell his father his relationship is fake yeah so like what happens is Travis and Travis gets the commentator job that he's been looking for. And one of the reasons he's entered into this relation- fake relationship with Georgie is to create a sense of stability as opposed to promiscuity. Like he's like, I'm not a slut anymore. I'm a one woman guy. And what do people love more than a reformed slutty man? Nothing. So he does. Georgie goes and she charms uh, the head of the network. We get like a window into like this little girl who's the daughter of this network head is living a very similar life to the one Travis had with two parents kind of disinterested in her outside of how they could wield her against the other. And he, uh, Georgie uh, entertains the little girl when she shows up unexpectedly at the dinner. And he's like oh, you've got the job as the commentator. And then in the cat in the tat, or the limo ride back, he professes his love to Georgie and they decide that they're going to do it for real. They're going to do their relationship for they're, real. Yes, yes. And then the next day, and he, Travis, decides that he's going to sell his childhood home, that his dad is still like, which by the way, how did Travis end up getting the house while his father was still alive? Yeah, how is he half on the mortgage? Don't know. Don't know. But then he like <laughs> runs into his father. His father like meets him at the bar to like intercept him. And his form of self-defense to his dad is to say his relationship is fake. And Georgie's brother over here. So then he goes and tells her at this Tough mutter competition for the Just Us League. 
he's like, you got to know what he said. And Georgie's like, oh, no, like we had a fake relationship. And he's like, well, he just said it two days ago. And it was like, <gasps> it was definitely like a shoehorned, manufactured bit of drama. Right. When I felt like there was plenty of drama and like plenty of obstacles, that's why the dad showing up is my weirdest part. Because I think he was a very effective golem inside of Travis. We didn't need him to facilitate this last move. And I uh, hate public proposals at sports stadiums. And so it was nice that he didn't propose to her on the Megatron. But the fact that he like on television, that's the Megatron of the of the country. Indeed, on his first day. I know. I was like, not into that. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. So, uh, no man's. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's a no man's for me. Mm-hmm. Me as well. I'm also wondering, like, development as a profession t- is problematic, right? Like, they buy up houses for cheap. They flip them as quickly as possible, which it seems like speed is more important than actual budget because you don't want to pay, like, on the mortgage more than you have to, and you end up cutting a lot of corners, and you end up having bad finishes and creating worse but more expensive houses in a community. But I don't know if that like applies in like a really small closed community. But it seems weird that you would even have someone who makes their living flipping houses in a small closed community. Of Port Jeff, Long Island? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Or that there would be that kind of housing stock to make the thing go and that they're not just like doing other projects as private contractors or it's like somebody wants to redo their bathroom. I think Port Jeff is kind of like gestured to as a vacation town. Mm -hmm. It's not really like a central idea of the setting. But there is like right now a housing crisis going on uh, in small communities across the country that are normally known as vacation communities because a lot of folks came in, bought houses during the pandemic in order to keep themselves safe and are now selling them at extreme markup or renting them out as Airbnbs at extreme markups. And that means that people in the community can no longer afford to live in their community. And we're seeing an unhoused, uh, a lack of housing crisis in those towns. And so yeah, like I remembering that real life piece of information. Yeah, like I, I think it would still be an issue in Port Jeff. Like, why do we romanticize people buying and flipping houses? Probably because of HGTV. Absolutely, like the Property Brothers and like Joanna Gaines and her whole like Magnolia Empire. Yeah, I really liked this um, show called. I think it was. No, it's not called Fixer Upper. Maybe it is, but they're in a really small community in South Carolina, but they redo the houses with, like, they preserve, like, the historical details and the character. They don't just slap shiplap on everything. And I really enjoyed them, but no one else did, so now their show is canceled. That's too bad. I know. I also loved it because the husband was a big sweaty boy, and every time he was working on a house, he was very sweaty. I was like, this is... This is uh, honesty. This is truth in television. (laughs) I do appreciate that. You could tell he was really working on the house himself because he was so sweaty. That's nice. And irritable. (laughs) But yeah, I I think it's a problem. That's just a little bit of current events I felt like I should mention since this book does talk about flipping houses and flipping houses has become a scourge. Mm -hmm. Any other, any parting thoughts from you? I I do want to say like I would try to read another Tessa Bailey Like, I feel like, like, part of me is like, no, Morgan, don't. Like, clearly it's an ideological difference. 
But another part of me is like, maybe the other books don't have this. Like, because people grow. People change. People grow. People change. Uh, I also think answering some of these like unanswered questions, like stuff that is untroubled in this book might be troubled in another one. I found myself really compelled by the Rosie Dominic, which is obviously going to be a second chance and I know is in the in this series, Hot and Hammered. Ugh. Hammered means drunk. It doesn't mean sex. It doesn't mean flipping houses. <laughs> Hot and flipping houses. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, and as we said earlier, I think one of maybe because this was a first outing for the series, like setting the tone and like being really enamored of your own jokes. And like, maybe that's part of Georgie's voice. And maybe that would be different. But like the sex scenes were really steamy, baby girl incest adjacent stuff aside. And like it flipping fast read. I don't know. I think sports romance is potentially the Duke of the contemporary. And I don't know how to sit with that. And so I'm going to continue to sit with that for a little bit, I think. Even more so than The Billionaire, because I think the sports comes with, like, different kinds of responsibilities that echo the things that people think Dukes are responsible for. I think sports romances, I think I I, I kind of enjoy them because there tends to be this, like, energy and a real sense of humor. Like, if you read a, a like, the sports romances we've read have always had, like, this real sense of levity. Um, but I think, like, a Duke romance can have either a sense of levity, you know, e.g. Mr. Impossible, or it can have this real, like, weight to it, e.g. the madness of Lordy and Mackenzie, right? And this, so madness of Lordy and Mackenzie would be more like the baby billionaire, and Mr. Impossible would be more like the uh, sports romance. That's interesting. I can see that dichotomy. I can see that. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Never your principles. Mwah! Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at Womance and on Twitter where we are at Mance underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcast. Until next time.